0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, our passage this morning is going to be in Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through the end. But before we read that, there's a, an interesting story that I saw I want to share. You might have seen this before, but uh, I think it is, is fitting with one of the, the themes that we'll see throughout this passage. There was a Christian lady who lived next door to an atheist. Every day when the lady prayed, the atheist guy would hear her. He thought to himself, she sure is crazy, praying all the time like that. Doesn't she know that there isn't a God? Many times while she was praying, he would go to her house and harass her, saying, lady, why do you pray all the time? Don't you know there is no God? But she kept on praying. One day she ran out of groceries. As usual, as usual, she was praying to the Lord, explaining her situation, and thanking him for what he was going to do. As usual, the atheist heard her praying and thought to himself, huh, well, I'll fix her. He went to the grocery store, bought a whole bunch of groceries, took them to her house, dropped them off on the front porch, rang the doorbell, and hid in the bushes to see what she would do. When she opened the door, she saw the groceries and began to praise the Lord with all her heart, jumping and singing and shouting everywhere. The atheist then jumped out of the bushes and told her, You crazy old lady, God didn't buy you those groceries. I bought those groceries. And upon hearing this, she broke out and started running down the street, shouting and praising the Lord. And when he finally caught her, he said, What is your issue? Didn't you hear me? And she said, I knew the Lord would provide me with some groceries, but I didn't know he was going to make the devil pay for them. (laughs) (laughs) Oftentimes, when we see the work of God in this world, he acts in sometimes unexpected ways, and he accomplishes his purposes through unexpected means. When we read the scriptures, we... May, uh, we may sometimes be surprised that uh, while we do run into miracles where God were supernaturally intervene, oftentimes when God intervenes, Uh, It's through very naturalistic ways, ways that uh, if we didn't know any better, we'd be able to chalk up to coincidence or something along those lines. And that's how we see God working throughout the world, Uh, not just in the scriptures, but even today, carrying out his will through his providence and the common grace that he gives us all. And. When we read this story, it's similar to the book of Esther in that we don't really see God directly involved. We don't really have much mention of God. But when we look at these events, we see God's fingerprints all over them, and we see that God is the one who is accomplishing his purposes even through these naturalistic means. So, uh, we catch up to the Apostle Paul as he in Roman, as he is in Roman custody. We remember he was in the temple where he was nearly beaten to death, and following this. He was nearly torn in two when he was brought before the Sanhedrin by the Romans. This was not an easy position for Paul to be in, right? Uh, we hindsight's twenty twenty. We know exactly what's going to happen to Paul, but Paul at this point in time probably uh, th- uh, probably thought this was going to be quite challenging, and, and it certainly was. Uh, He was in the hands of the Gentiles with the Jews eagerly seeking his death. And we remember the last verse that we read last time was verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 23. Where on that night where Paul is in his prison cell, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly borne witness to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome also. So we see that as Paul is going through these trials, it's not that the Lord comes in and miraculously knocks down all the walls and uh, miraculously sweeps away all of his enemies with a great rush of water or anything like that. But Paul is reminded that God is at work even in this. He's reminded that he's not alone, that the Lord is with him. Paul's ministry in Jerusalem is affirmed. He says, you have been faithful for my cause in Jerusalem. And then he is told that he must bear witness to the name of the Lord Jesus in Rome. So he's told, and I'm not done with you yet, Paul. You're not going to die here in Jerusalem. You're not going to be put to death at the hands of the Gentiles. But I still have a purpose for you. And that purpose is to go to Rome. And that's where we get to our text, starting in verse 12. So Acts chapter Uh, 23, starting in verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Now, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse, saying that thou would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who formed this scheme. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a curse to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more carefully, and we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, he came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said to him, lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you, since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand and stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, what is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the Sanhedrin, as though they're going to inquire something more carefully about him. So do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of them, who have bound themselves under a curse to not eat or drink until they slay him, are lying in wait for him, and now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And when he called to him two the centurions, he said, make ready two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and 200 spearmen to proceed to Caesarea by the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to Paul and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by him, I came to him with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And waiting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their Sanhedrin, and found him to be accused over a question about their law, but under no accusation deserving of death or punishment. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to speak against him before you. So the soldiers, according to their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked from what province he was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have to come together to read from your word, to see you at work in preserving your servant, Paul in uh, protecting him from these various threats and ensuring that he is able to go about the work which you have set aside for him to do. I pray that as we would look at our own lives, we would see your invisible hand at work in likewise preserving us, likewise uh, assisting us in carrying out the work which you have set before us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, the first part of this section is the plot against Paul. Uh, Paul was enemy number one as far as many in Jerusalem were concerned, and, their, uh, and his blood was in high demand. The wheels of justice apparently weren't moving quick enough for them, so they had determined to slay Paul as he was on his way to be tried. Uh, we read... Um, that uh, we read in verse, verse 12. Now when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. So they're very serious about this, this band of 40 or so men. This is quite a sizable group. You can cause a lot of damage with 40 men. And uh, they're very determined to get this done, determined to the point where they put themselves under an oath, as some translations say, or under a curse. And what this literally is, is they're saying, uh, if we do not kill Paul, we will starve to death, is much what they're saying. Let us be per- cursed by God if we do not carry out this deed. The thing that they're doing is, is, is similar to what Peter said in his denial of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus. We remember how Peter in his denials began to curse and swear. And sometimes when we hear that, we think of how we use the words cursing and swearing, using vulgar language, things like that. But what Peter was doing in reality was basically saying, let, me, let myself be cursed by God if what I'm saying to you is not true. And as they are putting an oath on themselves or a curse on themselves, they're saying, let us be cursed by God to never eat or drink until we put the Apostle Paul to death. So they're literally calling the curse of God down on themselves if they do not accomplish this. Uh, so, so zealous they are in their hatred towards Paul and the desire to see him dead. And we see with this uh, great zeal uh, be- the belief that God is on their side. Uh, the belief that God is on their side. Just like the men who persecuted Jesus believed that God was on their side in this, despite all the evidence to the contrary, these men likewise believed that in what they were doing, they were honoring God. And this goes right along with what Jesus had said would happen to his followers in John's Gospel, where Jesus said that they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God these things they will do because they have not known the father or me so uh believing uh they are doing this work in service to God but the reality is they do not know him as paul had described them in the book of romans they have a zeal for god but not in a cor- not in a no, but not according to knowledge And we see that this conspiracy also gains the support of the Sanhedrin. Probably not official support, but this plot is going to be carried out by the 40 renegades, but they'll need the assistance from the Jewish council. And we see here that just as the Sanhedrin was willing to lie in order to get Jesus convicted before the Roman court, we see here that they were willing to lie in order to get Paul put to death as well. They come to the Sanhedrin and and say this, now, notify the commander to bring Paul down as though you were going to determine his case more carefully. So this is the, this is the lie. The Sanhedrin comes along saying, all right, let's uh, continue on with proceedings. We need to have another, uh, another hearing where we gather evidence. So bring Paul down to this location. But as they're bringing Paul down to that location as they're traveling along, the plan is that Paul be attacked by this group of 40 men. Uh, Odds are 40 men would be able to overpower any guard that the Apostle Paul would have at this point. Uh, So the Sanhedrin, under the guise of seeking true justice, under the guise of seeking uh, more information and determining whether or not Paul really deserved what he would get, are setting him up in a trap. So that he would be put to death by this group of people. And this is the pattern of unrighteousness that we see in the rulers of Israel at this point in time. This, uh, this, uh, uh, this pattern of sinning and disguising it as righteousness. Righteousness. And oftentimes, our sins, our wickedness, we, we can justify them with some, uh, by painting them as some kind of righteous thing. This is the thing that they did in Israel. The, take the Korban rule, for instance. This was one of the rules that Jesus himself went after. It was the idea that you could take money that you would otherwise use to uh, help take care of your parents, but then dedicate it to the temple. And you would say, oh, well, this money is dedicated to the temple. Therefore, mom and dad, I can't help you out with it. Now, one of the loopholes of this rule is it doesn't actually have to go to the temple. It can remain in your possession. And after mom and dad go uh, pass away, then you can... Uncorban ban that money and you can still use it for whatever you want. But this, you know, it's a very honorable thing in many people's minds. Oh, well, this money is set apart for God, right? Doesn't that sound super spiritual and super good? Well, this is one of the rules that Jesus came down on because uh, in following this rule, it was giving men an excuse to not obey what God had said. Similarly, uh, Jesus talks about how the scribes and the Pharisees would tithe mint and dill, but then they'd neglect the weightier portions of the law in uh, exercising justice and taking care of the poor and the widows. He talked about how they devoured widows' houses and in pretense made long prayers. So people who look really holy on the outside but are doing, uh, committing wicked and abominable deeds on the inside, straining out the gnat while swallowing a camel. And we already saw that Ananias had no problem with this remember when uh, just the last section that we read when Paul is brought before them uh, he is unlawfully struck at the hearing where they're hoping to find him guilty of breaking the law Uh, so and Paul called him a whitewashed tomb and the idea is that hey you might look good on the outside with that nice layer of paint but you're crumbling on the inside so uh, and we see that they're, that they're doing this too under the guise of, oh, well, we're just simply seeking justice. We're just simply seeking the correct information. Uh, they're using this lie as a means to have Paul put in a vulnerable position where he could be put to death. And something for us to keep in mind is that God will never put us in a position where obedience to one law will require disobedience to another law, right? Because in order for them to carry out what they believe to be a just thing, right, they believe it's just that Paul be put to death, but the only way that they can accomplish it is to sin, right? It's to lie. It's to commit murder. It's to kill him without a trial. It's to kill him without the testimony of two or three witnesses. They believe that that's a righteous end, but the only way they can get there is sinning. But when we look at the law of God and we look at God's word as a whole, we can acknowledge that God will never put us in a position where if we are to be obedient to one command, we must then break another command. God's law is perfectly consistent. It's only when we begin introducing our own man-made rules on the same level as the law of God that we run into these kinds of issues, right? Uh, they, are plotting, uh, they are plotting to lie in order to murder Paul in what they believed to be in obedience to God. They should have realized somewhere along the lines that they were missing something. And we, if we find ourselves in a position where it's like, well, uh, I can either disobey God uh, by doing this, you know, care, acting in this step of obedience, we should recognize that you know, we're missing something. So anyway, we continue reading and the plot is eventually revealed. So a plot to kill Paul seems pretty bulletproof, right? You got 40 guys, that's enough to accomplish about what you want to do. You've got the support of the council. You've got the plausible deniability where the council can say, hey, we weren't planning to do this, we just wanted to try uh, Paul. We had no clue that this was going to happen. So it seems like a pretty bulletproof plan. However, we remember what God had said to the Apostle Paul, and God, as we know, will not be thwarted by the devices of mankind. The plot is eventually revealed to Paul by his nephew. We continue reading in verse 16, but when the son of Paul's sister had heard about their ambush, he came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander for he has something to report to him. So here's a new character that is introduced, the nephew of Paul. And we don't know much about him, unfortunately. This is one of the characters that we run into where we just wish we knew a little bit more. But uh, we're not left with much. We can only really speculate in some ways. We don't know whether or not Paul's nephew was a Christian or not. We don't know what what his relationship with Paul looked like. We don't know why he, how he might have found this out. You know, this seems to be a very top secret operation. You, know, you, don't, uh, you don't advertise your plot to assassinate someone in the Jerusalem times. right? So he must have known the right people. He must have been uh, in the right circles where he was trusted enough with this information or something along these lines. But what we do know is whatever the relationship with Paul was, he cared enough about Paul to warn him of this plot. So And something that we might be able to deduce is that, the, that this young man likely came at great risk of his life, right? To warn Paul of this thing, to uh, go against not just this rabid group of uh, uh, 40 zealots, but also the will of the council, uh, he's putting himself in a very dangerous position. And there's probably no doubt that if they found out, that this man had given this information to him, he would have been killed. And yet, uh, he, unlike the rest of his compatriots, desires to do the right thing before God. So he warns him about this. Uh, Paul then sends him to the commander. Um, sometimes when we think of God and his protection, we think, you know, like I said before, that okay, God is going to supernaturally intervene. Uh, therefore, I'm just going to trust God and I don't have to worry about anything else. We can get the the idea that if we trust in the goodness of God and... Uh, that it would be untrusting to take steps in order for God to bring that into the world. Think of uh, there's a group of, there's a group of people called Christian Scientists, and one of the basic teachings of Christian Science is that if you get sick, you're not supposed to go to the doctor, because you're supposed to trust that God is going to heal you. And if you trust, and if you have enough faith, then then God will heal you. And if you go to the doctor, well, you're just showing that you don't have enough faith. And we can, and we might not think along those lines, but maybe some things we can uh, think along those lines. Well, we can trust that God is going to intervene. We shouldn't do anything. We should uh, keep out of it. We should keep other people out of it. You know, when we look at the injustices in the world, we can we should we sometimes think well we know that God is going to intervene therefore it's not my place to step in and cry out against this injustice or whatever it might be we can trust that God is going to work and while we can trust that God is going to work we should also recognize that God uses the things and the forces of this world to carry out his own purposes there's a I think of a story and we've probably all heard this story before. It's a fictional story. But uh, there was a guy living probably in Florida, I would imagine. But he was receiving warnings that there's going to be this massive hurricane and it was going to flood the area, completely submerging it. And uh, this guy, he's sitting on his front porch. His neighbor walks by and he says, hey, uh, you need to get out of here. The flood's coming and uh, you're going to die. And the guy says, oh, don't worry about it. God will save me. Okay, well, uh, Water starts to rise up. The guy has to go to the top floor of his house, and everyone else in the neighborhood's gone, but uh, the guy's still there, and people know about that. So a boat comes along, they say, hey, you need to get into this boat because this water's not going to stop rising. And the guy says, hey, don't worry about it. God will save me. All right, well, the water keeps going. The guy has to get to his roof. He's sitting on his roof, and a helicopter comes, and they're shouting now, you need to climb onto the ladder. The flood's going to come. It's going to sweep you away. And the guy says, don't worry about it. I've prayed. God is going to save me. Well, the water rises up and the guy drowns. And then he asks God, God, why didn't you save me? And and then God says to him, well, I sent your neighbor. I sent a boat. I sent a helicopter. What else do you want me to send you? right?" Uh, Recognizing (laughs) And we can recognize that God uses the things of this world in order to carry out his will. So the Apostle Paul, upon hearing this story, didn't just sit back and say, "Huh, well, uh, that sounds awfully scary, but I know God will save me. I know what God told me he's going to do, so eh, don't worry about it. No, well, he acts according to what he knows God is going to do. He knows God is going to save him, so he says, all right, well, let the centurion know, and I know we'll be fine. So he sends uh, his nephew down to speak with the centurion, and, uh, and he is warned. One, uh, one early writer says this about uh, the Apostle Paul doing this. He says, after appearing to him, Paul again allows him to be saved by human means. And what happens? Paul was not thrown into confusion. He did not say, so I have been deceived by Christ. Instead, he believed. Indeed, because he believed, he did not sleep and did not give up on the abilities that human wisdom had given him. So we recognize God works and operates through the means here in this world to protect us, to preserve our lives, to carry out justice in the world, to uh, feed the poor and uh, to take care of the homeless, all of these things, right? God is working through people like you and me, through the institutions that he has established. And now God is working through even the Romans to protect and preserve the life of the Apostle Paul. So when Paul heard this threat to his life, he did not ignore this warning, but he acted according to, with the knowledge that had been given to him. He sends his nephew to give this information to the commander so that he could act accordingly. And similarly, it's important that we recognize that there are cases where uh, things must be deferred to the civil governing authorities. And refusing to do so can be disastrous, right? If, and, and, and not just the civil governing authorities, but all those other things, right? If I find out I have some kind of life-threatening disease, it would be pretty foolish of me to not seek someone who has knowledge of that and who can potentially treat me. It doesn't mean that I don't trust God. It means that I trust God is going to lead me to where I need to go in order to be healed, right? So uh, something to to keep in mind. So uh, the young man, he then goes and he reports this to the centurion. And another area where we see the providence of God in this is it would have been very easy for the centurion as a Or not the centurion, but the commander, a young man comes up to him and he's got this story. It'd be very easy for him to say, Now, come on now. Uh, He's going to be perfectly fine. He's going to be perfectly safe. We need to do this by the book. Don't worry about it. But instead, we see that he takes him by the hand. He listens to his story. He believes his story. And I really do think the hand of God is at work even in that. Uh, and then he then and then after hearing the story, he acts swiftly in order to protect Paul. Verse twenty-three, and when he called to him two centurions, he said, "Make ready two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to proceed to Caesarea by the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to Paul and bring him and uh, to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor." So he acts quickly. And here we see one of the means by which God, in his providence, protects human life. And God, we can look around today and see the providence of God in protecting human life through the institution of human governments. So here's a question. Here's a question. Why do governments exist? Did they Were they invented by mankind? Is it it our collective minds coming together and saying, all right, this is what we need to do? Where did they come from? Well, I think ultimately they come from God. They were instituted by God. And they have been equipped by God to rule according to God's righteousness. And they are a gift. They are indeed for our good, as has been told to us by Paul, by Peter, as we see throughout the scriptures. Gover- uh civil governing authorities are part of what we call God's common grace. Common grace. Have you ever heard that term, that phrase? God's common grace. It, it, it's the concept of the grace that God gives to all people indiscriminately, right? There's a a distinction between God's common grace and God's special grace, right? God's special grace would be things like salvation, or uh, he had special grace on Abraham when he called him out. He didn't call everyone out, but he called Abraham out. He had special grace on Israel when Israel was his chosen nation. Not all nations were his chosen nation, but Israel was. He has special grace on his people who are his church. But we do see God's love, his universal love for all people in the world in his common grace. And this is one of the things we see in his common grace. So uh, a couple pictures of God's common grace. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 44, or Matthew chapter 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? God doesn't just say, all right, well, for those who love me and those who follow me, I'll let the rain fall on them. But the unbelievers, their fields can stay dry. No, rain even is a picture of God's common grace. Earlier on in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul said, in generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now, when I go to the restaurant and I eat the same food that an unbeliever eats, he can enjoy that food just as much as I can, right? An unbeliever, when they eat food, it doesn't taste like ashes, They still taste taste it and enjoy it and are blessed by it, a picture of God's common grace that he gives. And common grace is experienced even in the institutions that God has established, like the family. Who invented the family? Well, God did. And do you need to be a Christian to be part of a family? No. Do you need to be a Christian to enjoy the blessings that come from being in a family? No. No. In Matthew, similarly, Jesus says this, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So Jesus says, Even you who are evil, know how to treat your children, right? Even you who are evil know how to bless your children. An institution established by God for the blessing of all mankind. And we see that governments likewise are instituted for the good of mankind. The Apostle Paul says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And we see here God using his institution, sinful as it was, corrupt as it was, to carry out his own purposes in protecting the Apostle Paul and preserving his life. God can even use wicked governments to maintain a degree of order and peace. Because the Roman Empire was certainly not a righteous empire by any means. But even, though this, but even in this case, uh, where Paul is being protected, there, uh, uh, we do see God's grace shining through and protecting Paul through this imperfect means. In this case, the commander acts swiftly and rallies the troops in order to secu- uh, securely move Paul. And we read this massive number that he has gathered together. Uh, This is probably half the garrison, about 470 men total. He says, all right, they've got 40 people? Well, let's outnumber them 10 to 1. Uh, uh, 200-foot soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, all ready to march on Caesarea. And uh, it's the third hour of the night that they do this, so they're going to be marching long into the night. You know, uh, I heard once, uh, do you want to know why there are so many wars that happen in the world because all the armies of the world are always up really late at night and waking up really early. So they're always grouchy, so they just want to kill something. Um, and But, yeah, we see here uh, they're up. Yeah, they march on into the night. They march through the night, and they get to uh, the next location, Antipatris, the city about fo- uh, 35 miles away from Jerusalem. And the commander sends a letter uh, with them to the governor of Caesarea, and I won't comment too much on it. We read uh, this letter, Claudius Lysias, so this is the name of the commander, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. He uh, conveniently left out the part that he didn't know who Paul was when this was first kicking off. Uh, he conveniently left out the part where he thought he was that Egyptian troublemaker. And he also left out the part where he was about to have him beaten. But, well, well, whatever. Uh, uh, this is the official report. Uh, anyway, and wanting to ascertain the charge for where they were accusing him, I brought him down to the, their Sanhedrin and found him to be accused over a question of their law, but under no accusation deserving of death or imprisonment. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to speak against him before you. So he's uh, sending the case along to the governor, sending it along to Felix. So then Paul is taken securely to Caesarea. The soldiers depart with Paul by night. They reach Antipas. Uh, which, as I said, is about 35 miles, a little over halfway to Caesarea. And this is where the foot soldiers turned around and marched back. But Paul continued on with the 70 horsemen. Uh, and Paul then, uh, with the remaining soldiers, arrive at Caesarea the next day, and the letter is delivered to Felix. Felix. So they had come to Caesarea, delivered the letter to the governor, and they presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked from which province he was, and when he learned learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, and giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So one of the buildings built under Herod. So, uh, that is our passage, and as we look back, we, as we look at Paul's experience, we might see many similarities between this and what other characters in Scripture have experienced. Think David, for example. David, very early on, was chosen to be God's king, right, the king over Israel, and yet this did not mean that he did not face all kinds of challenges and dangers and threats along the way. Remember, very early on, Saul sought after his life. And he had to be saved multiple times. He had to be saved uh, by Jonathan. He had to be saved by Michal, his wife. Samuel had to come and rescue him from the hand of Saul. He was protected after, Saul, after Saul's death from the son of Saul and the tribes that were still loyal to him. Absalom, his son, uh, David's son, led a rebellion against David. And yet, through all this, he was still protected. Throughout his life, no matter what challenges came along, God was with him, and we see his constant protecting presence. And David, likely in light of the the dangers he was facing by Saul, wrote this psalm, Psalm 56, and we can all turn to Psalm 56. And this psalm may have been in the mind of the Apostle Paul as he was experiencing these various challenges and turmoils. Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day and night for they are many who fight proudly against me. So David's situation, I'm surrounded by enemies, people who want to see me dead. And there's Paul, hey, I'm surrounded by people who do not have my interest at heart, who want to see me dead, they're plotting against me, they're looking for any way they can to kill me. But then David goes on and says, but when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Now, what is our response when we face the challenges of the world? Because there's plenty of them out there, right? I know we live in the United States. Things are pretty easy going here. It's pretty great. We're blessed by God in many ways, but that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges. That doesn't mean there aren't difficulties that we all face. What do we do when we're facing these challenges? Do we fall into a, a despair? Do we begin asking, okay, where is God at this point in time? Or do we recognize that God never left. He's right there with us. His hand is guiding us and protecting us. Uh, we can say, it is, uh, it is in you when I am afraid that I will put my trust. In God, whose word I can praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Right? What can man do to me? Right. Think of what Jesus said. Don't fear those who can only kill your body, right? The worst they can do is kill you. And what does that mean? That means you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. Is it really that bad, right? So why are we so afraid of things like that? Uh, What can mere man do to me? All day long, they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth. In anger, put down the peoples, O God." You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are, bl- are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I might walk before God in the light of the living. We see here in Paul's case, just like the book of Esther, in this account, we don't necessarily see many direct actions from God, right? There wasn't a great big miracle that swept away the 40 men. Uh, There wasn't a, a supernatural trance that the commander had to be thrown into in order to do the right thing or anything like that. But what we do see is God's fingerprints all over these events, uh, we see God with the nephew of Paul and learning of the plot to kill him, coming and bringing this information to where it needed to go. We see God in the special care that the commander had in preventing this plot. And we see God at work in sending Paul to Felix for his protection and for further hearings where the gospel can be proclaimed. In our own lives, it can be easy to miss where God is working in similar ways in order to preserve us and help us as we carry out his work in the world. And that's because we don't often look at things from a wider perspective. And as a result, we don't always consider all the ways that God protects us on a daily basis. Now, here's just one thing that always comes to my mind when I think of God protecting us. How many of us drove here today? By most of us, right? And you probably drove past vehicles coming the other way. How far away were you from those other vehicles as you passed them? Maybe about that, about that far. And the combined speed of two vehicles, maybe going 30 miles per hour, 60 miles per hour, that can cause quite a bit of havoc on someone, can't it? And yet, we didn't even think about it when we got here. We just, well, I got to church. But we see God's hand protecting us all the way there. Um, not, to, not to mention names, but uh, there's recently uh, someone who had been in an accident and yet, you know, probably inches away from death in many ways. And yet God's hand was with them, protecting them, preserving them. What an amazing thing when we consider the hand of God protecting us in all of our ways. Uh, we don't have to worry about the, the dangers of the world because we know that God is with us. And, uh, but we can often be very naturalistic in our thinking and, and looking at these things. And uh, we, ca- we just chalk these things up as coincidence or good luck without realizing that it is God and his common grace with which he is blessing us and on the other hand when we go wrong we might get the idea that God must have taken the day off today or oh man uh, God must not care maybe oh did I do something wrong and is God punishing me for this Paul didn't know this yet but this was the last time for several, uh, but Paul at this point in time would not be a free man again for several years at this point. He was facing years of imprisonment. He didn't know that. Be, but if he did, it'd be very easy for him to think, oh no, uh, what's happening? Why is everything going wrong? Why aren't things working out? But this was not the attitude that Paul had, Right? Paul, though he would be stuck in prison cells, house arrest, no longer able to travel freely and minister to the churches the way he once did, uh, did not view these things as some kind of a punishment or a downgrade or anything along these lines because he knew that God was using his circumstances that he was in ultimately for his own good, uh, for Paul's own good and for, his, for God's own glory. And though things in our lives may look like they're spinning out of control, we might not necessarily be thrown into prison, but we all have various health issues. We all have uh, various conflicts and problems that we're dealing with. We may look at these things as, ugh, why is God trapping me in this? Well, let's look at what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians as he is a couple years into his prison term at this point. As he is in Rome, he says this to the Philippians. Now I want you to know, brethren that my circumstances, my circumstances of being taken by the Jews, imprisoned, now in Roman custody, now no longer a free man, now no longer able to travel around, do the things he used to be able to do, My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else and most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. My circumstances have worked out for the benefit of God the gospel, and those around me who can look at my circumstances and then fearlessly go about sharing the gospel because they saw what he was doing. Let's look at the courage of Paul the, uh, and recognize that Paul's courage doesn't come from because he's such a great guy, such a brave guy, such a strong guy, but because of the God that he is with. The God that he is with. When we recognize who we are with, when we recognize the God who is with us, We won't be afraid. When we recognize the God who is with us, we'll look at our own circumstances and acknowledge, hey, God's doing something here. When we recognize that God is with us, we can walk about this life courageously, fearlessly, not worrying about what may come, uh, always recognizing the good that God is doing in our lives, all to his praise and glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have this morning to consider you, to consider your work. Uh, as we read from First Peter this morning, though we do not see the Lord Jesus, we recognize his presence. Uh, we recognize that you are at work in everything that we do. Your hand of protection through many things that we don't even consider, uh, preserving us for your own purposes. I pray that Uh, We would seek to walk according to those purposes, recognizing that our lives are not our own, that our circumstances are not our own, but they ultimately belong to you and they are for your praise and glory. Help us to live according to the truth that we've read this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.